All right, today we are going to talk about bibliology. That does not mean I'm going to hand you a list of references. We're going to talk about the Bible. Bibliology means the study of God's Word. And it doesn't mean studying what's in God's Word. It actually means studying what God's Word is. And so we're going to talk about that today. Now, when we think of the nature of God, it makes sense to us that He would choose to reveal Himself to us, does it not? We're going to study the actual nature of God. I believe it's the next two weeks. And as we study those things, one thing that one thing that becomes really clear is that God wants us to know Him, and so He reveals Himself. He created us to be in a relationship with Him, and we can't know Him without Him revealing Himself to us. And He does that in two primary ways. You'll notice on your notes there. The first one is something that we refer to as general revelation. Now, just the very term there, you might be able to guess what that means. It refers to God revealing himself or revealing things about himself through his creation. It's a general revelation, meaning it reveals general things about him. And so it includes things like what we see in nature would be a form of general revelation. It's how God acts in history is a form of general revelation. It's even the internal witness that he put into us is a form of his general revelation. Now, the purpose of him doing that, the purpose of general revelation, is to reveal God's existence and his nature, at least some part of his nature to us. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 19 with me. Psalm chapter 19. And today, because of the nature of this, we're going to do some passages we'll read together, but then... Some passages I'm going to just blow out there like a shotgun, which means I'm just going to read them to you because otherwise we would be here until 7 o'clock tonight because there's just a lot that we're going to go through. So I'll just fire some of them out. You can just write the references down. I will read them to you, but some of them we're going to actually turn to. And so Psalm chapter 19, we look at the first seven verses. One of the neat things about Psalm 19 is it gives us both forms of God's revelation. We'll talk about the second one in a minute here, but the first is found in the first seven verses. Listen to this. For the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its sight. So when you notice there, one of the first things it says is that it's designed, general revelation is designed to reveal God's glory in the works of his hands. So it tells us a little bit about his glory, who he is, and then how he works, what he does with his hands. Romans chapter 120 says that it reveals his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature. And so what that really tells us is that it reveals something about God, but not everything about God. In fact, general revelation has its limits. One of the limits is it's not intended to reveal everything about God. In fact, if we go back to Psalm 19, you'll notice here, it's an interesting wordplay that it does here. It says, verse 2, day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. But then notice what it says. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Well, how can you have speech without words? Well, what he's really communicating here is that it reveals something, but not always in specifics. 
So you can hear this voice. You know somebody's talking, but you may not hear the actual words and get the exact descriptions. And so it's general revelation is somewhat limited in nature. And again, the Bible tells us that it's designed to reveal God's glory, the work of his hands. It's designed to show us his invisible attributes, things like there's order. That's a good example. We look in the universe, we can see that God is a God of order. There's a system, you know. So it reveals some of his invisible attributes. It also shows that he's powerful. We can see that in his creation. shows that he's divine. And so it reveals to us those general things about God, which is why we call it general revelation. It's also limited to some degree because we're looking at a fallen world now. And we're looking at a fallen world as fallen creatures with a fallen mind. Talk about a double whammy. You know, it'd be one thing if we saw something broken, but we were perfect in our analysis of it. But when you see something broken, and your ability to analyze it is broken, sometimes you're going to come up with broken conclusions, right? And so it can be somewhat limited. And that's why God chose to have a second form of revelation. And we refer to that as special revelation. Some people call it specific. I call it special. Special is the more common term. This refers to to God revealing specific or special things to specific people at specific times. And it generally refers to verbal or written revelation about God. Not always, but that's the most common. So when you think of special revelation, we're talking about this. Again, it's God revealing more specific things to specific people at specific times. We have a Bible here. It is written by 40 different authors, written to wide ranges of different people at different times, in different places, with different messages. That's special revelation. The purpose of special revelation is to reveal more specific and detailed knowledge about God, and here's the kicker, so that we can enter into a redemptive relationship with him. The purpose of general revelation is not specifically salvation, but the purpose of special revelation is just that is to lead us into a saving, redemptive relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, I mentioned this is probably the most common form when we think of special revelation, but you've got other things. You've got theophanies in the Old Testament. That's where God came down in human form, in the, in the form of pre-incarnate Christ. He came down, he, he talked. We have all kinds of examples of that with Hagar and Abraham and Jacob who saw God in some human form. That's a form of special Revelation, because when that happens, there's usually a dialogue and a discussion that takes place. You think about when God revealed himself to Abraham and talked and talked about the son that he would have. That's a form of special revelation, but it was done in a theophany. It wasn't done in written form. It was done in spoken form and in a physical form. Dreams and visions are another form of special revelation. We have Joseph and Daniel and Peter and Paul, all of them had visions. Ezekiel had a vision. John in the um, the book of Revelation had a vision. That's a form of special revelation. Remember with John... He was told what to write in his book and told what he couldn't write in his book. So that's another form of special revelation is these visions and and, um, the theophanies. Um, Sometimes just direct communication. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. I've been studying on um, anthropology. Spent almost a full week studying just what it means to be in the image of God. And what's striking is that when God created Adam and Eve, it says that God walked in the garden. Can you imagine that? Now, I imagine he didn't just walk, he probably talked. Oh, we have that too, because he talks to Adam and he says, Hey, all this you can eat, don't, don't touch that one. So that's a form of special communication, special revelation as well. And then ultimately, the scriptures. So, 
I'm going to make a statement here. It's an important one. I think I even wrote it down in notes for you so you get it right. When we declare that God's Word or the Bible is God's Word, we mean that all 66 books of the Old and the New Testament are the actual very words of God. It's as if he was right here saying these words. This is his special revelation given to us so that we can enter into a personal and redemptive relationship with him. Today we're going to talk about this book. There's four declarations I'm going to make about it, and then we're going to talk about why it's important to us. The first declaration is very simple. The Bible is God's word. I say that with no shame, no hesitation. It is God's word. We're going to talk about that. But then there are the very important three eyes of God's word. The Bible's inspired, the Bible's inerrant, and the Bible's infallible. We're going to talk about those. Those are the... Remember I said I would share with you some big theological words sometimes? Those words are important because they have been used for millennium to explain what we have here in our hands. And those are important words because they've been words that have been formulated and, and focused in on by Christians over the centuries to accurately and decisively tell us this is what we believe about this book. And so, God's word is a phrase that's used. The Bible being inspired is a word that's used. That it's inerrant and that it's infallible. Those are critical phrases and words. And you will find those in statements of faith. You will find them in declarations from the pulpit. These are the things we stand on. So let's go ahead and talk about that. The first point today is the Bible is God's word. Now, we know this because the Bible claims itself to be the Word of God. We're going to look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament and some claims that the Bible makes. The Old Testament, we have the prophets and the authors of the Old Testament who repeatedly, throughout the whole entire Old Testament, claim that what that is, is God's Word. There's phrases like, thus says the Lord, the Lord said or the Lord spoke. We have statements, God said. We have the Word of God. We have the Word of the Lord. We have statements like that made over 3,000 times in the Old Testament. It is screaming that it is God's word. We see it in all the different sections of the Old Testament. The first section is always referred to as the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's also referred to as the law. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. It all starts with declarations like I just said to you. In Genesis chapter 1, the phrase, God said, is repeated 15 times in just the first three chapters. We're just going to touch on these. If you look at this, you get verse 3. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse. Go down and it says in verse 8, God called the expanse heavens. Look at verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters. You go down, verse 14. Then God said, This is repeated throughout Chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, 15 times. Do you think Moses was trying to make a point here? Moses is writing down exactly what God said. So it makes what's recorded there God's word. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 says this, And afterwards Moses and Aaron came and said to the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he says what the Lord said, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast 
in the wilderness. And so what does Moses do? He writes that down in the book, which means what he's just written down in the book is exactly what the Lord told him to say and now to write. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The whole book opens with, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, And then for the next 27 chapters, Moses writes down exactly what God said. Tell this to Israel. Numbers opens almost exactly the same way. The same phrase. Deuteronomy, Moses continually refers to what he's writing as the commands and the statutes that God gave to him to write down. And so what we see in the Pentateuch, the first five books is that every single one of those books makes declarations that what's being written down by Moses was something God specifically told him to say and told him to write down. So again, it screams, this is God's word. Now there's a second grouping of books in the Old Testament. It's referred to the prophets. It includes Judges, Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then the minor prophets. I'll just read these to you. You can write them down if you want to. Samuel wrote... In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and His word was on my tongue. And then he writes down what God told him, what God put on his tongue. We have Jeremiah 1, 9. Then the Lord stretched out His hand, and He touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And then Jeremiah does the same thing Samuel does. He writes it all down. The very things that God put on his mouth to say, he then puts pen to, in this case, would have been animal hide or plant reeds, to write down the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, and then he tells them what to tell the people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. And Isaiah then does the exact same thing. What we have in the book of Isaiah is a list of everything the Lord told him to say to Israel. Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechai, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts. That's a double whammy. Say to them, and then you have the phrase, Thus says the Lord. Return to me, declares the Lord. There's a third one. Declares the Lord. That I may return to you. Oh, and then a fourth. Says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah is emphasizing the fact that what I'm writing is exactly what the Lord told me to write. So we see it in the Pentateuch. We see it in the grouping of the Old Testament books referred to as the prophets. comes to our final group of writings, which are just called the writings. It's books like Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Esther, etc. Now we don't see as many specific statements that say, thus says the Lord in those things, because that's not really the nature of them. Most of what we just talked about in the prophets and, and that were God specifically having them declare things about himself and go out and tell them this, and then they wrote those down. What we find in books like Solomon and Ecclesiastes and Ruth are, in many respects, musings or stories written by individuals. But throughout those books, they constantly refer to the first five books and the prophets as the very words of God. I'll just read these again. Psalm 119, which is all about God's word, makes these statements. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Proverbs 28.7 He who keeps the law 
is discerning son, but he who is a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. So we find throughout even those writings, if you go and look at them, they look at those first five books and the writings also then of the prophets, they look at all those things as God's actual words. That's the way they treat it. And so you have throughout the whole entire Old Testament constant declarations that what exists there from page one to the very end are the actual very words of God being given to those who wrote them to record for our benefit. And, as we mentioned before, it was to lead Israel into a redemptive relationship with their Heavenly Father. That was the purpose. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament also makes very similar claims about itself and about the Old Testament. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus speaking. Listen to what he says. Starting at verse 3. And he, well, we'll start at the very top. And some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. This is just a rule they came up with by themselves, their traditions. And Jesus says, Why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And what does he refer to it as? God said. It's his law. And he contrasts that with their law, what they had written themselves. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have would be of help, has been given to God, he is not to, or he is not to honor his father or his mother, and by this you invalidate what? The word of God by your traditions. And then he calls them hypocrites. So Jesus himself referred to the Old Testament as the very word of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The author declares, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's referring to what was written in the Old Testament. Hebrews is a very Jewish book. It's what they had for scriptures. They didn't have a New Testament like we do with this. It was being written. And so, as he refers back to the Old Testament, he refers to it as, verse 12, the Word of God. The Gospel of Mark records Jesus' words again, Mark chapter 12, or 12 verse 26. For the words which, I, which you gave to me, he's talking to his Heavenly Father, the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed you sent me. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus is basically praying to the Father. He says, I've told them what you told me to tell them. And how do we know what Jesus told them? Because it's recorded. It's in the Gospels. We've got four Gospels of Jesus speaking, recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus said those things, which ultimately were recorded, were given specifically to him by God to tell them, which makes what's recorded in the Gospels then Jesus' actual words makes them the Word of God. It makes the Gospels the Word of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is an interesting one. You want to see a bold statement? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I think Dustin might know where we're going. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. Listen to what Paul says about his own declarations, and in many respects, his own writings. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things, here it is, which I write to you are what? The Lord's commandments. Not mine, not my traditions, but the very things that I write are the Lord's commandments given to him. Now, Paul's not alone. Take a look at what Peter says. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Because you might say, well, okay, so Paul says that about his own writings. I want you to see what Peter says about Paul's writings. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, and also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Peter says, you know what, that Paul, some of the stuff Paul's written is hard to understand. It's scholarly, it's deep. Even Peter says it was difficult. But then look at what he says about it. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. You know what he just did there? He equated Paul's writings with the rest of the scriptures. If he would have just said, as they do the scriptures, it would have said nothing about Paul's writing. But instead what Peter says is, this is what they do, just like they do with the rest of the scriptures, meaning Paul's writings, Peter saw as part of the scriptures. So Paul, or so Peter recognized that what Paul wrote was inspired. It was God's word. We're going to get to this in a moment, but Paul and Peter both refer to the word of God as being inspired and being God-breathed. So we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament attesting to itself. Well over, like I said, just the single statements alone, God said, the Lord said, God spoke. That in itself is over 3,000 times. But on top of that, the things we just covered. Everything about this book screams that it's God's word, specifically given to us through special revelation so that we might be able to enter into a redemptive relationship with him. Now, the skeptics will claim, well, but you can't rely on the Bible to make statements about itself. I can stand up here and I can tell you I'm the king. doesn't make me the king, right? So they say you can't do that. I kind of say, well, why not? <laughs> you know, If something says something about itself and everything it says elsewhere proves true, then I should probably accept what it says about itself. If I stood up here and I told you that I was the son of Elizabeth Pamperin, and you went, well, I'm not so sure I can trust you, and I demonstrated everything else. I grew up in Green Bay, lived on 21 Patty, you know, on Patty Lane. You know, I happened to work for my mom at, at the lake, you know, and you went through and you checked all those things, and all those things proved true. Do you think you'd be inclined to say, yeah, I'll take his word that he's Liz's son? Even though it's a declaration I make of myself, you could trust it, right? Think about this when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is unparalleled in its accuracy in how it records history, geography, science, even in describing human behavior. Not a single historical, geographic, or scientific statement in the Bible has ever been disproven. That's a bold statement to make. Critics will say, oh yeah, and they'll point out all these things, but none of them ever hold any water. There's not a single thing in the scripture. Now, there are some, some small grammatical things sometimes, little errors here and there. We'll talk about that in a moment that are copyist errors and other things. But those are so minute and we can identify them and know why they were made. But when it comes to the Bible recording history and geography and scientific facts when it makes them, none of that has ever been proven to be untrue. 
It's unparalleled in its accuracy. I always laugh about the example of where, for years, the um, the uh, archaeological community had pointed out that there's no such thing as a group called the Hittites. Because the Bible talks about the Hittites, but they were never, ever found in for for decades. That was kind of used as a linchpin to disprove the Bible until they discovered archaeologically that the Hittites really did exist. Then they went to, well, David didn't really exist. Well, now we have signet rings and other things with David's name on it carved into rocks from his kingdom. Well, okay, and i got to go to something else. Its impact on history, governments, nations, different eras is completely unmatched, too. There's been no other book or even collection of books that comes close to the Bible's influence. We have a nation, folks, built on and established on Christian principles that are found here. We have Bible verses etched on monuments all over our capital, in our courtrooms. There's no other book that has had that kind of influence on any culture. Now, you might say that Mormonism has had kind of an impact to some degree, but it's minor. You might say that Islam, yeah, there's large portions of the world that have been influenced by Islam, but not like the Bible. Not even close. It's the most widely published, widely read, widely studied, and get this, even the most widely stolen book in history. In fact, estimates are that ever since the Gutenberg Press was invented, that the 500 years since, that there's been over 6 to 10 billion physical copies of the Bible published. I would imagine that right now that is dwarfed by the electronic versions. You can't even count the number of copies of this book that are now available all over the world. 2,500 different languages, the most translated book ever in history. And then think about this. In spite of all the efforts over thousands of years to destroy this, we can go back in history and see governments that made it their goal to stomp it out. China right now has doing everything they can to stomp this out. And when they couldn't stomp it out, they decided, well, maybe what we can do is come up with our own version, a government-sponsored version, and maybe that will placate the people. Because they couldn't get rid of it. And in spite of that, over generations, it's still here. And it still grows, meaning it still gets distributed. And even in spite of that, it's interesting, when you look back at history with documents that have been destroyed and and other things, um, we have more copies, manuscripts, and portions and pieces of this book than anything else in history. There are over 30,000 manuscripts of just the New Testament alone, meaning either full copies of the books or portions of the books. I could go into all the details, I won't, but when you think about the second and third and fourth most documented books, at best they have 500 copies. That's it. At best, I think the third or fourth has something like 13. And that's from Homer and, and others. And so my point is this. Billions and billions of people throughout history and around the world have recognized the Bible as the Word of God. That's some good evidence there. When you look at everything that this book stands for and the things we just went through, everything about it screams that it's God's word. So that's our first point. This is God's word. Now let's get to the three I's. We're going to get into the substance of, of this now. The first I is this. The Bible is inspired. And this refers to, I don't, don't have this written on your notes, but it actually refers to its origin. How did this come about? So inspiration refers to the Bible's origin. It's what makes the Bible different from every other written book in history. Now, the orthodox theory of inspiration and the one that we would hold to here at this church is something that's referred to as verbal plenary inspiration. 
And what that means is this. I'll just repeat that. Verbal plenary. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Verbal plenary inspiration. What that means is this. Every single word that the authors wrote in their original writings, meaning Paul's as, as his scribe is writing down those words, every single word that was put on that parchment in the order that it was put down on that parchment was the actual word of God and the word that God intended to be used. Not just the thought, not just the concept, but every single word was the exact word God wanted written there. So not, again, just the concepts or the ideas, but the very words. That's what verbal plenary inspiration means. In the late 19th and 20th century, the theologian Benjamin B. Warfield defined it this way. This is how he defined inspiration. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on the writers of the scriptures so that fully using their own personalities and their own writing styles, they somehow wrote precisely what God intended them to write and therefore they were the words of God God, as well as men. So what he basically is describing there is that it's not like God just put them in a trance and moved their hand and they wrote. They weren't robots. God worked through the Holy Spirit to take Paul's personality, the language Paul used, (laughs) the run-on sentences, which he does, um, use Paul's personality, Paul's language style, and with that, he worked with that to still record every exact word the Lord wanted recorded. So again, it's not scripting, and we're going to get into how this happened a little bit later here, but that's inspiration. And that's why Paul's letters read different than Peter's, and why Jude reads different than maybe James does, or why Moses' words, the first five books, read differently than David's in the Psalms. Because God used their personalities and their writing styles and their languages But it was still exactly the words that he wanted written down. Now some would argue, well, it was the ideas that were inspired. No, it was every single word. What did Jesus say? Not a single jot or tittle, which means, and those are just little Hebrew marks. God even inspired those, every one of them. Now, we have to make a qualification here. What I just told you applies to those original writings, original manuscripts is what they're referred to not copies or translations. I've got to be careful with this, and we'll get to this in a moment here. What I mean by that is, the actual document that Paul had when his scribe was writing it, that's what was inspired. Now, when they sent that to the churches, and the churches started making all kinds of copies, the copies weren't inspired. Now, they were preserved, and we'll get to that in a minute. It's called preservation of the scriptures. There's an amazing process on how God protected those. But the reason we say that is, we know, we have common sense, God gave us a brain, that when we look at what's written in here, this is a compilation of looking at all kinds of manuscripts because, for instance, there, we might have six copies of, the, of Paul's letter to the Romans. And there might be slight minor variations because when a scribe was copying that, he copied a wrong word. Or maybe he misspelled a word. Okay, So how do we account for that? God makes no mistakes when he inspires, but when we copy them, we can make mistakes. They didn't have... Xerox machines back then. Drop it on and Xerox it. They didn't have electronic copies that they could just send out that go out without errors, right? So that the, the inspiration, that phrase inspiration of scriptures applies to those original writings. But that doesn't mean that we don't have God's word here. And we're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit, but that's a key point to make. 
And part of the reason we have to make that is because we have some that will say the King James Version of the Bible is inspired. All other Bibles are trash. Well, that's a misunderstanding of inspiration. You know, because Paul didn't write in King James English. You know, but if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us, right? That's what we hear. Now, exactly what I described is what the Bible itself describes. And there are two passages. These are probably the two most important passages on inspiration in the scriptures. Memorize these two passages. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Yeah, I already heard somebody quote it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, says this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Let's break this down. The Greek word that's translated inspired here is theos neustos. Okay, you don't have to memorize that. Theos neustos. It's two Greek words stuck together. First word is God. The second word is breathe. So what it means, Paul is saying all scripture is breathed. It is the very breath of God. It came out of his mouth. That's probably the best definition we have of inspiration. God just breathed it into existence. It's much like what he did with creation. All I got to do is say, say, let there be light and there's light, right? He breathed out scripture. Now we're going to see how that's combined with man's role next. So that's the first one. Key word for us to use. Scripture is God breathed. The second important passage is 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 19 through 21. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Oops. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy ever was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now we're going to break this down. Peter starts by telling us what Scripture is not. He says this, Scripture is not from man's own understanding. Notice he says, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, interpretation there is not the word that we think it is. When you think of interpretation as what we do on Sunday mornings, we interpret the scriptures for you. That's not what this word is. This word refers to, to actually um, coming from one's own imagination. So another way to, to render this would be, no prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. That's the NET's rendering of this. So what Peter is saying is, Scripture isn't from man's imagination. That's not what it is. He then goes on and he tells us that it's not an act of human will. In other words, the writers of the Bible weren't the initiators when they wrote. So it not only didn't come from their imagination, it ultimately didn't come from their own initiative or will. It's interesting you might think, since Paul says, I desire to write to you. What Peter tells us is, well, it really didn't come from Paul. The initiation for that came from God. God intended for Paul to write. Now, we know we have four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two in our Bible. What happened to the other two? They weren't inspired. God did not move Paul to write them. Paul wrote them on his own. But what we have, the two that we do have, clearly are inspired by God. And so, those letters, Paul might have said, I feel like writing, but that came ultimately from God, putting in his heart. It was God's will that moved him to do it. So, he tells us what the scriptures are not. They're not from man's imagination. They're not from man's own will. But where are they from? In other words... Peter's now going to tell us what Scripture is. He uses three important phrases here to tell us what Scripture is. 
I'm going to read the ESV translation because I like that one here. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. It says much what the others do. I like the word order better in the ESV, and it helps with my outline. So I'm going to use that. So again, the ESV reads, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So the first phrase is, Men spoke from God. This means that God is both the source and the originator of Scripture. Remember, it doesn't come from man's imagination or man's will. Where does it come from? Men spoke from God. He's the originator. In Luke chapter 1, verse 70, Zacharias said that God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. He was quoting David from Psalm 106, 10. That God spoke through the mouths of the prophets. Twice in Acts chapter 3, Peter said that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And so what we find here is that God spoke from and through men. That includes what's written. In fact, you notice the context here. Peter's talking about the written word, but he talks about it in the language of speaking. The second important thing Peter tells us here is that it was done as these men were carried along. They spoke as they were carried along. The word carried along at its root means to bear something or to carry it. It's the same word that's used of Simon Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross. Imagine that imagery where the cross beam is put on Simon's back as he's carrying that along. And so that's the word that's used here that these prophets were carried along. Now there's a wide range of usage of that word carried along in the Bible, over 12 different usages of it. One of them is used to describe how ships are carried along and moved along by wind catching their sails. As the sails billow out, it moves those ships along. And that's, I believe, what Peter is trying to indicate here, especially considering that the Holy Spirit is often spoken of as wind or breath. And so the picture that he paints here is that these men, it's as if they open their mouths and God now begins to use their mouths and speak, or he's using their hand as they're writing with the pen, as the Holy Spirit blows on them and billows the sails and carries them along and moves them in the direction that they want to go. The last important phrase that Peter uses here is the phrase, by the Holy Spirit. Felt the Bible prophecy is linked to the Holy Spirit. It's been seen in a spectacular sense when the Holy Spirit comes upon Old Testament saints. And what do they begin to do? They begin to prophesy. We see the even Saul prophesied when the Spirit came upon him. We see that all over the place. Samuel and Jeremiah, Joel. We even see it in the book of Acts. You can write this down. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Acts chapter 19, verse 6. The Holy Spirit comes upon people. Sometimes they prophesy. One of the roles of the third person of the Holy Spirit is to communicate God's truth. We're told in John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. That was a promise that was made to believers that the Holy Spirit, when he would come, when we would be indwelt by him, he would lead us into all truth. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit does that was in the crafting of what we have in our hands here. He would lead us into all truth by being behind the writing of what we hold in our hands today. As Peter describes, men of God speaking, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's inspiration. Probably the best way that we can describe it. What about the second I? The second I is that the Bible is inerrant. Inerrancy refers to the Bible's truthfulness. 
The simplest definition is that the Bible is, and this is important, holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy and completely without error, not just in matters of faith and practice, but in every statement that it makes, and that would include faith and practice, history, scientific matters, human nature. Let me say that again. The Bible is holy and completely without error in every statement that it makes. Now, we know that the Bible is true because God cannot lie. If he is the author of it and he cannot lie, then what he says must ultimately be true. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. I want you to turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised ages long ago. Notice he ties there our faith in the knowledge of truth as a result of God not being able to lie. And notice he says, promised ages long ago. He's referring to the Old Testament there. That what we find in the Old Testament, the knowledge we find there, is truth because God is the author and God is not able to lie. But even at the proper time manifested, even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, Paul now just said, the very proclamation I made to you, which is the gospel, is also from God. It's also true because God cannot lie. So he attests his proclamation and equates it with the Old Testament. So Paul, once again, refers to the knowledge of the truth, God not being able to lie, ties it to the Old Testament and ties it to his own proclamation. It's without error. It's true. Now, the Bible also attests specifically to its own inerrancy and its truthfulness. Psalm chapter 119 makes statements like this in verse 140. Your word is pure. What do you think of when you think of pure? It's not adulterated. It's not mixed with it. It says your law is truth in verse 140. In verse 151 it says all your commandments are true. Verse 160 it says the sum of your word is truth. We already saw in Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word perfect there means that it's entirely in accordance with truth. The word pure or sure means that it's verified, it's confirmed. So what the psalmist is saying there in Psalm 19, verse 7, when he says that the law of the Lord is perfect and the testimony of the Lord is sure, he's basically saying it's truthful and it's been tested and proven true. Nehemiah actually wrote this, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinance and true laws, good statutes and commandments. All of which, he says, are true. Romans chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, In the law we have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. When he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. What? Accurately handling the word of truth. Finally, when Jesus was praying in the garden, chapter 17, verse 17 of John, Jesus is praying and he tells God, sanctify them in truth. And then what does he say? Your word is truth. So again, the Bible itself attests to its own truthfulness. Now some skeptics, again, will claim that the Bible is only true on matters of faith and practice, but nothing else. 
You know, when it talks about your faith, it's true. But, eh, science, history. What's the thing called science? And Big Bang Theory, science and history. Amy could probably sing it. Um, they, they say it can't be trusted. In fact, I was listening to some guy that professes to know Christ talk about Genesis chapter 1 the other day and made statements about, oh, everybody knows it's poetry. It's different than the rest of the book. There is no difference between the way that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is written when you compare it to the rest of the book. It is all narrative. Technically, any Hebrew scholar will tell you that. No, 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 it's poetry, and poetry can't communicate truth. Well, you know what? Psalms are all, all poetry, and they communicate truth. You can't communicate something historical or truthful. Have you ever, any of you read poetry on any historical event before? Yes, you can communicate actual historical facts in poetry. Yes, we can trust what's written there. It's historical narrative. The Bible has made all kinds of scientific statements about the earth, the ocean, the stars, the planets, the universe, light, plants, animals, human biology, physiology, behavior, health, hygiene, disease, and all kinds of other things that have all proven to be true, and they were made before those things were even discovered. Think about that. When did we learn about, when did we learn about washing hands? Do you know? I mean, for a while, you know, you go back in the dark ages and they had no clue that, gee, if you're going to stick somebody's arm with a needle or something, you should wash your hands first. They had no clue. We have cities that were built on top of their drainage systems for sewage, not realizing the disease that that would cause. We discovered those things as human beings over time that, oh, we probably need to, you know, wash our hands or remain clean or... But yet, when you look at the Bible, there are statements in the Bible. The washing laws of the Old Testament weren't just about purification. God was trying to keep these people healthy. And so the Bible is filled with these statements on everything from science to history that are proven true over and over and over again. I love archaeology. I've got books at home of archaeological finds and everything else. I'm on some news feeds. There isn't a week that doesn't go by where there's not a new archaeological discovery that validates the Bible. And I love reading this stuff because so oftentimes it flies in the face of archaeologists who have claimed that's not true and all of a sudden they're staring at an inscription that proves a biblical event happened and happened when and how the Bible describes it. There is no question this book is accurate and true. The third and final I is the Bible's infallible. Running out of time here, so I'll work through this as quickly as I can. The infallibility, it's closely related to inerrancy. Oftentimes the words are used interchangeably, but that's a mistake because inerrancy refers to the Bible's truthfulness, meaning it's completely without error. But infallibility refers to the Bible's trustworthiness. Now, that means it's incapable of causing error or incapable of misleading. Now, think about this for a minute. You can have inerrancy without infallibility. In other words, you can tell the truth but still mislead. Politicians do it all the time. I'm going to make a statement here. You can say that my wife is a drinker. That's true. My wife is a drinker. I admit it. Yeah, she drinks an awful lot of water, carbonated beverages, things with stevia in it, but she doesn't usually drink alcohol. But if I just say my wife's a drinker, I'm being truthful, but I'm misleading. The Bible can't do that. It's truthful and it cannot mislead because it is infallible. You can mark down Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Well, you know, actually, let's just go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 55. 
Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the water, or bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent. Now, why is that an important verse on trustworthiness? God is saying that my word accomplishes exactly what I set it out to accomplish, which means if he had this written on our behalf to lead us into a redemptive relationship with him, and that is exactly what it's going to do. It cannot mislead us. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. That word tested there is like tested in a fire. It's purified. It means it's been proven to be true. I'll read some others. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. The word of the Lord is pure word, or the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on earth, refined seven times. Another way to read this, NET says, the Lord's words are absolutely reliable or absolutely trustworthy. Psalm 1830 says, the, um, this God, his way is perfect, the word of the Lord proves true. It's trustworthy. Second Samuel 22.31, the word of the Lord is tested. The, in, uh, the New, New King James says, it's been proven. Peter wrote, we have this prophetic word made more sure. What he's saying there is, it's been proven. It's been tested. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. Which is why he says, so you would do well to pay attention to it. Why? Because it's trustworthy. One of the greatest proofs of the infallibility of the Bible is its prediction and fulfillment of prophecy. There are over 1,800 prophecies in the Old and New Testament. There's something like 600 in the New Testament, 1,200 in the Old. Over half of them have been fulfilled exactly as they're described. What's interesting is all the others are all future prophecies. So every prophecy from the past has been fulfilled exactly as the Bible said it would be fulfilled. And yet many of them were written years before. Some of what we see in the New Testament was written seven, eight, nine, a thousand years prior to them actually occurring. And so that's one of the testimonies to the infallibility, the trustworthiness of the scriptures. There's no question that the scriptures are reliable. It's been proven over and over and over again. Just Christ himself fulfilled 300 of the prophecies regarding him. If you can't trust that, what can you trust? People move forward on information far less reliable. Look at Facebook. Somebody posts, I heard this, and all of a sudden it blows up and everybody thinks it's true, right? It's not been proven. Not been tested, not been tried, but God's word has. So one final note regarding these three I words, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. Again, I alluded to it a little bit before ago. They apply to those original writings. But what does that mean for what we hold in our hand today? I'll take just another four or five minutes here to wrap this up. What does it mean about our Bible today? It doesn't mean that it's not the word of God because of something we refer to as the preservation of the scriptures. What does that mean? Well, the Bible promised that God would protect his word. In fact, David wrote in Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7, that God would preserve his word from his generation to forever. Isaiah 40, chapter 8, or, uh, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Jesus said at one point that not a single jot or tittle 
would be removed from God's word. God promised to protect his word, even though it would be copied by fallible men. So while we may not have Moses' original physical copy of Genesis that he wrote, or we may not have Paul's handwritten parchment that he wrote to the Romans, what we do have are tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts that have been copied by hand. And one of the remarkable things about that is when you compare those things, they are almost exact replicas of one another. They estimate that less than 1% of the Bible varies, meaning that when you take a copy of Isaiah's manuscript and you put it next to another copy of Isaiah's manuscript that are a 1,000 years apart, less than 1% of that has errors. That's remarkable since they copied these things by hand. And what's crazy about it is these differences that we see are so slight They actually almost always refer to these extremely minor things like a word not copied correctly or a letter being reversed. It almost never changes the meaning of a verse. So they're inconsequential errors. God assured us of that. And the other crazy thing about that is we can usually tell why the error was made and we can tell which the correct rendering is. Meaning you look at Isaiah here and Isaiah here and there's a slight difference between the two, maybe one word. We've been able to learn how to figure out which word is the wrong one and which one's the right one. It's through techniques of how language works and, and how manuscripts work. And so what that tells us is that what we have here is even though it was copied through a human process, we can be assured that what we hold in our hands today is pretty much what Paul wrote. Almost exactly down to maybe just a smidgen of a little ink smeared here, maybe a letter dropped off here. And again, those things are very, very rare. So we can be assured that what we hold in our hands here is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, even though we don't hold in our hands the parchment that Paul scripted himself. We hold an exact copy of it right here in English. All right, let's wrap this up. Why is this important to us? Four or three very quick things. For one, it assures us that this book is the very words of God. This is what he said. It's written down in form that we can understand. These are his exact words. Second, it assures us that we can trust it. It's not just matters of faith and doctrine, but for everything that it says, we can trust it. It says that God made me from the ground by his own hands. I didn't come from some ape, folks. I can trust it regardless of what the scientists that are much smarter than me say. I can trust it. Third, it assures us that we have God's supreme and final authority right here. This is our final authority for everything. We do not need to be ashamed of it, and we should hold tightly to it. Amen? Amen. I'll have one last passage for you to read on your own. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. But I will leave you with that this morning. One thing you're going to notice here is there's going to be some Sundays where we may end up going over, much like we did last week, because we are trying to cram in an awful lot of stuff. Um, so hang in there with us. Um, we'll get through it all, but uh, hopefully this will help us to become grounded more in our faith. I hope to, uh, this... Uh, Time this morning has encouraged you that what you hold in your hands there, it's a book that we love and we love it for all the right reasons, folks.